This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to a complete history of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton author and producer of several Manchester United books and films, joined as always on this journey by the legendary football writer and author Paddy Barkley um, on this journey through Old Trafford history. If you're watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe, joining the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Obviously, now um, we're going into the 61-62 season, which means there are plenty of episodes to catch up on if you're listening to this in real time, or if not, you know, it's in a sea of content about Manchester United history. So just dig in and enjoy um, the history lesson taught by... (laughs) Narrated by myself and Paddy, not taught by... Um, (laughs) 61-62, Paddy. uh, Manchester United, they begin the season, um, the pre-season... We've been talking recently in um, in the recent seasons about how United had really only just started this sort of pre-season preparation thing. And last season, they hadn't had one, and they started the season really poorly. This season, they do have one. Um, they have a, a pre-season in Germany and Austria in which I think it features a win against Bayern Munich. So the preparation this time aids a good start. United actually starting the season relatively well with um, six wins in the first nine games. So a lot of optimism at the very yeah. start of the season. Yeah, uh, yeah, a- a- absolutely. And, uh, um, it, you know, it uh, it was false optimism, Wayne, I think, uh, as, it, as it turned out. This, this, this pre-season that you've just described, by the way, just worth mentioning, this has become almost uh, the norm now, hasn't it? The, yeah. the tour... The preseason tour, um, just to get them tuned up. I think Matt has learned the lessons from you know towards the end of the 1950s of of not of having a false start. Yeah, especially also also we thought. <laughs> yeah, but they um, yeah. I mean, the the trend had tended to be um, taking United away at the end of a season, maybe yes. as far as America, yes. and, and basically at that time. I mean, sometimes some of the players would be on international duty, they'd be at a World Cup or something, so it'd be a depleted squad. And sometimes you might have a few murmurs of the home fans, like let's say in America, complaining that United's best stars weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had all that kind of marketing spill, which was still being introduced into the game, really. But this time, yeah, yeah it, it's very much becoming a case of perhaps knowing that it was affecting the, the early season form that it'd be good to get a few tune-up games under the belt and um, United were doing that and yeah they started the season quite well winning um, against Chelsea a good win against Blackburn 6-1 but then you could always sense that this was a team in transition and Busby wasn't shying away from that still I mean there's a sale early on in the season Alex Dawson we talked about how Mm. prominent his role had been in the uh, post-Munich years, so three years where he really sort of stepped into the breach and mm-hmm. his goal record was so admirable for um, for a player who, first of all, of 
that skipped education, but also for the pressure that he was under. You know, he, mm-hmm. really remarkable goal return. He'd done really well. But as we've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, Busby had sent, spent so long concentrating on fixing the defence mm-hmm. and now coming really close to doing so, uh, get, getting a solution there. But I yeah. think he's now noticing the problems in the front line because where, where he'd sort of put all these players in and they'd done well, there was still no cohesion. There was none of the complementary talent that we'd seen in earlier, you know, like Pearson yeah. and Boris seemed to riff off or, each other. Or, or Taylor and Violet, you know, yeah. none of these hand-in-glove class, classy combinations. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so you had the individual struggle of these plays on top of the weight of Munich and Busby, who, you know, he navigated carefully through what we could call a sea of sentiment. And now he was ready to get back to the serious business of restoring United to the top and, in, in the cases of Pearson and Dawson, you might even argue that it was an act of mercy um, at this point because the, the pressure, the weight of expectation on them now was not only carrying United forward, but it was delivering, uh, well, performing in a, a team that's expected to challenge. And I think that was a step too far for them considering yes. what they've been through. Uh, so it was an act of mercy, as I've described it there, as, from Busby's point of view, to sort of relieve them from that pressure, to know when the judgment was right to do that and allow them to move on and enjoy the football again. But you had that, those decisions were being made at the same time as a catastrophic run of results. Uh, they mm. lost 5-1 at Arsenal. Um, it, that included Jimmy Nicholson and Nobby Lawton at half-back, which tells you again, the, the problems that United are having at that moment because the halfback line and the unbalanced front line is really not helping United settle at all. But at the same time, in football, Paddy, there's a football backdrop and the, the maximum wage at that time, there'd been a lot of talk about that with Jimmy Hill and that contributed to growing tensions at Old Trafford, hasn't, hadn't it? Yes, it was a, it was a period of, of change. We mentioned in the last episode the uh, abolition of the of the national wage uh, achieved of the maximum wage should i say achieved by the 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 uh, players union under the leadership now of uh, jimmy hill as well as cliff lloyd who've done a lot of the hard work in the build up to the change anyway the historic change came in those of a certain age such as me will remember that the fulham chairman tommy trinder uh, one of the the great comedians of, 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 of Britain and well-known for, for, for his showmanship. And he got the headlines by saying <clears throat> that his best player, Johnny Haynes, one of England's best players, uh, was worth £100 a week. And so obviously when the maximum wage standing at £20 was dropped, his wages had to increase from 20 to £100 a week. And they did. Not all of the players in the Fulham squad, because he was so obviously the best. Um, but Matt had been telling United players, according to Johnny Giles, who by now was a member of the squad. Um, Johnny Giles's recollection was that in the meetings leading up to it, Matt was saying, boys, you deserve £100 a week. All of you do. And of course, as soon as it was dropped, he changed his tune. And his first offer to the players at the start of the 61-2 season was, uh, well, actually, when the, the, the maximum wage was dropped, um, was 20, 25 pounds, not, not 100, plus five pounds appearance money. Now, if you played twice in the week, obviously you get 35 basic. So it was still a, almost a doubling of the wages. So, but they were expecting a lot more than that um, because of what Matt had 
indicated in his public and private pronouncements before then. Anyway, they said the delegation of players uh, went to Matt and said, you know, this is simply not good enough. They came away with 30 plus 10. So that in a week where you played two games, uh, you would get the 30 pounds basic plus two uh, appearance monies. So I'd take you up to 50. And the players were happy enough with that, happy enough with that, but still resentful. It was a strange time at United. It was a period of, of great austerity in terms of the way the club had been run. We've spoken in many previous episodes about how Walter Quick, Quick another long-serving secretary um, who perished at Munich, had had a, a very much a regime of, you know, every paper clip had to be accounted for and and nothing was ever bought new. You know, the, the, uh, the admin staff, you know, like Les Olive um, now, who retired as a goalkeeper, you know, we'd have to go up to Withy Grove stores in Manchester to hang around the second-hand markets and pick up desks and so on. So it was an atmosphere of austerity that remained around the club. The training kit was a stinking mess. So uh, all of these things, it wasn't a, it wasn't like Manchester United today, where, you know, it seems, you know, any time a player falls during training, a flunky runs out and changes his shirt. But I mean, it's not like it was just completely different from that. And yet, on the other hand, to go back to Matt's um, transfer dealings, Dawson had gone to Preston North End, £18,000. Um, uh, Ronnie Cope, uh, yeah. stalwart defender, usually reserve defender, had gone to Luton for 10000 And most amazingly, Dennis Violet, part of this great partnership, United's record goal scorer in a single league season. He'd only just beaten the record. Yeah. Was sold to Stoke City for £25,000. All of this money, most of it, uh, being ploughed into the signing of David Heard from Arsenal, a very flamboyant with a centre forward with a tremendous shot um, from uh, Arsenal, a friend of his old Man City mate, Alec Heard, a uh, son of his old Man City mate, Alec Heard. Uh, he came for 37,000, which was a huge fee in those days, later to be dwarfed when another goal scorer came to Old Trafford, but that's We'll get to that when we come to it. But um, so it was at a time where Matt was spending, you know, quite freely, spending and, and selling, you know, quite freely, yet at the same time trying to pinch every penny he could uh, within all the portals of Old Trafford. Yeah, the, the Violet sell, uh, sale was particularly shocking, as you mentioned. It was 179 goals in 293 games. I think it was a, a bit of a, a statement sign a sale as well because you've got Dawson moved on, Pearson now thinking that his card's going to be marked because mm -hmm. of Dawson's move. Pearson in a very similar boat uh, to that, but Violet, um, as you mentioned, was a shocking sale because of the time yes. that he still had so much to give him because he was <laughs> absolutely still at his peak, although he was being sold like Cope, like Dawson. Not to a rival, even yeah. moving down a division only for one season because Stoke were, they had Stanley Matthews, they had Violet, they had 
you know, brilliant players. <clears throat> and, and they were obviously shooting straight back to the top division, but he didn't sell to a rival when he saw. But the, the, <clears throat> the truth about Violet is the players felt at the time uh, then, and those who survived still feel now that he was sold because he was a ladies' man. He was, um, uh, you know, he had a, uh, he was a very good professional um, and, and, and a very, very nice and popular man. Um, but he had the reputation for being a bit of a ladies' man, and and Matt was uh, uh, was never very keen on that sort of thing, uh, that, those sort of um, stories going around uh, town. Anyway, whether that was the whole reason or not, and nobody can think of many others, uh, he was sold and replaced with David Ayer from Arsenal. Yeah, um, on the subject of the club's austerity, it's funny that you mentioned Les Olive. I remember a story told to me by Sammy McElroy recently, and I, obviously this is jumping further ahead in time, but it's relevant yes. for the time because of where we're coming up to. Yes. Um, in 1976, once the club had qualified for an FA Cup final after a, an absence of, well, we're going for 14, 13 years um, for mm-hmm. the not to spoil it for too many people, but there's an FA Cup final appearance coming not too far away on the horizon. But the the um, when Martin Buchan approached Les Olive to discuss the bonuses for for what the club would uh, the players would receive in 1976, Les Olive pulled out a book and he said, "Well, this is what the players got in 1963." <laughs> <laughs> they get away with it. Um, obviously, we're talking nearly 15 years on. Um, and uh, 15 uh, years of inflation. <laughs> yeah, and uh, United were trying to pull a fast one on that one as well. Um, uh, which, uh, which, so Les Olive was well brought up. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely a product of his environment. Um, he was. If we talk about Dennis Violet as a ladies' man, well, thank God Busby's not going to have that problem um, because there's a young shy lad by the name of George Best. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, a December friendly against Real Madrid. You remember those games have been going on? Well, this is pretty much the last of them now. Real Madrid comes to town um, December 1971. Uni- uh, 61. United win 3-1, actually. Uh, Heard who started quite well at Old Trafford, scoring two. Phil Chisnell, who we're going to talk about in a short <coughs> while. He, he also scored. Day. But the most um, lasting impression was um, presented by Di Stefano, who was there. Um, obviously, peerless, fantastic footballer. He's mm. absolute peak for Real Madrid. And he scores an unbelievable goal, robbing uh, Bill Folks of the ball and, and sort of charging from deep to score an unbelievable goal from long range. And George Best, um, who's been at United for a few months now as a, as a kid, a young amateur, mm. learning his way. And obviously so gifted at that level that nobody quite knows what to do with him because he's so good. Um, but watching Di Stefano, he's struck by the idea that the greatest players, the very greatest, the ones who are talked about as being the best ever, mm. earn that separation through working hard. And yeah. best sort of takes that into his um, his, his yeah. performances on the Saturday. And yeah, yeah. It's a strange thing that a, a boy of that talent automatically just takes on this work rate all of a sudden i think um, also it was he, he was he, he could see the greatness and he knew he had that it george knew yeah. somehow even though he was tiny and still aged only 15 uh, when he had that experience yeah um that uh, that he knew he had that greatness in him and um you know that's what these people are 
Um, they don't sort of understand what it is to take one step at a time. You know, their their horizons are limitless, and and that was that was that was that was what George would have taken as well from from seeing Di Stefano. Just a little bit about the background of George and a little bit of historical note here, a little footnote. In the, and we are, I don't want to leap forward um, six years, um, but the Matt Busby, the great Matt Busby's team do fit into the, 90, they are called the 1948, the 1958 and the 1968 teams. And this, is in a way could be seen as the genesis this season and, and as we talk about it we'll see it's pretty mundane in a lot of ways particularly in the league um it can be seen in retrospect as the sort of genesis of the 1968 team because bobby charlton as you know is already there he is to become a great player there is dennis law is not at old trafford however already in this season Matt's efforts to get Dennis Law to Old Trafford are intensifying. Yeah. And to complete the, the Holy Trinity, um, the 15-year-old George Best at the time at which we are talking, season 61-62, has just arrived after being carefully scouted by Bob Bishop, the Northern Ireland scout, who had in turn alerted Joe Armstrong, who in turn did his due diligence on the background of George's family, he, um, you know, which he reported was um, uh, respectable Presbyterian uh, Northern Irish family, um, and uh, which was true. And uh, they um, duly invited George and his and another young player, Eric McMordy from Northern Ireland, pretty well. Even the casual students of United History will know that at first the boys were homesick, just went home, but that after further discussions between Joe Armstrong and Busby and uh, Dickie Best, George's dad, uh, George came back and this time for good, settling in Acliffe Avenue, Dalton Tom Hardy, initially with, uh, um, with David Sadler, I think. And uh, so anyway, that, that in, you can see the kindling, uh, already Shea Brennan's there, Tony Dunn's there. There's the kindling of the, uh, of the 1968 team. But as you're about to describe, Wayne, that kind of form is a long way off uh, at the time at which we're speaking. Yeah, there's uh, eight losses in 10 games, which basically precedes Violet's sale. I think at this point, um, Busby's looking at a, a statement. I think that's why Violet was sold it. Well, at the fact that um, Stoke came in with the money for him. Mm. Um, but at that moment, if you remember back a few seasons when the babes were breaking through, there was a game at Kilmarnock, wasn't it, where he started ringing the kids. Yeah, yeah. He liked to do that, make a statement to say things need to change because it sent a message to the team. Mm -hmm. And obviously at this point in time, I mean, there's a great line in uh, Ralph Finn's book, Champions Again. Um, it's what has happened to Scanlon, Violet, Gaskell, etc. Gaskell at this point, um, a squad player who is coming in because Greg becoming increasingly, un, not so unreliable, increasingly susceptible to injuries, um, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, 
Finn asks, what has happened to Scanlon, Violet, Gaskell, etc.? The answer seems to lie in Matt Busby's ability to peer into the future. He will replace or transfer a player before he grows to be less than, more than useful to United. He will replace a player with one who, while not yet as good as who not yet as good as one, but who may and should eventually be better. In this, Busby showed sightedness well in advance of any other manager in the game. It's all well and good, but at the time, United were desperately struggling, struggling in the league. The form picked up just after the, the turn of the year, but a lot of emphasis padded was placed in the value of a cup run, basically. In, in this season, actually, we talked about the um, advent of the League Cup. United mm. actually declined to enter it this time round, which meant mm. all the emphasis was placed on an FA Cup run. Yeah. And um, not not so much a, a eggs being pl- placed in the basket kind of thing because United were drifting in the league anyway. Well, but mm. they were very much keen to have this cup run, and um, thankfully, I mean, it did generate some positive momentum in the second half of the season, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, they reached the the semi finals, which for a team uh, languishing in the league on their way to the first first bottom half finish since. Busby's arrival whew, 15 years earlier, 15 seasons earlier. Um, so, but Busby wasn't worried. So he was quite happy. He didn't feel that the FA Cup run was detracting from what they were doing in the league because he was never worried about relegation. He did once take Jack Crompton, who was a controversial figure within the dressing room. Um, Jack Crompton, uh, you know, we've talked about many, many times, United stalwart goalkeeper in the 1948 side and so on. And still the man who sort of conducted the training sessions. Mm. You might say Bibbs and Combs, and, but he, he, he was, you know, Busby trusted him implicitly. And one time he was under a lot of pressure because Noel Cantwell, we've talked about him last season. He came from West Ham, good, very good player, but Gobby. He was from the Ron Greenwood's Academy in West Ham, which thought they knew everything about football. And and occasionally, even people with as distinguished as Matt Busby would be considered sort of, you know, a little uneducated by comparison with those steeped in the professorships of Upton Park. So uh, it, 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 he, Cantwell would, would uh, although he wasn't the captain, Morissettas was still the captain at that stage, he was very much a leader in the dressing room. And a lot of what he said was not complimentary to the training methods of Jack Crompton. Jack got to hear about it, took against Cantwell quite naturally. And so there was, quite apart from a little bit of tension about money, but even more so, there was tension about training methods. You know how you hear it now when uh, more frequently than, 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 than in the times we're talking about, United Change Manager, you hear briefings about, oh, so-and-so's departed manager's training wasn't very good or this, that, that. Well, that was what it was like at this time in terms of, you know, and even the boss got blamed because Jack's, Training was supposed to be not very good. And anyway, Jack got to hear about it. Matt called him into the office and, and said, uh, look, um, uh, we'll, we'll be all right if the good Lord 
says, we go down, we go down, but we'll come back. And he was just trying to calm Jack down. And he said, and he pulled a bottle of whiskey. And as you know, Matt wasn't a huge drinker, but he did like a whiskey. So he pulled a bottle of whiskey. It would probably be his favorite Johnny Walker Black Label out of his desk, put it on the thing, pulled out a couple of glasses. And he said, you know what they say, uh, Jack? He said, they said management of football players, it, it, it drives you either to madness or to drink. He said, and I don't intend to go mad for anybody. Pulled the cork out of the bottle and poured them a couple of whiskeys. So that was, it was a nice story. And it, 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 didn't, it didn't mean that the players um, stopped being a bit sceptical about Jack's methods, but it settled Jack's nerves. And it settled the nerves of, um, of the team. It meant that they, although they, at times it looked as if they might be threatened with relegation, they never really um, got that, uh, they, they managed to escape. And in fact, had some very good results, including victories over the champions, um, or the, the ruling champions who were Ipswich, um, over the team who'd finished second. Five uh, against Ipswich. Is a five nil, yeah. Ipswich did collapse yeah. um, from 1st to 17th after winning the title. Um, uh, but even so, to beat Ipswich was something. And uh, they also beat Burnley, Tottenham, who were, were also top clubs at the time. So um, there were some good results. And this kind of inconsistency was shown when, 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 you know, they, despite not struggling in the league, they got to the FA Cup semis. So it was, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a mixed season, but one that didn't look good. Yeah, I'm, certainly on paper, you'd look at it and say it's a disappointing one. The the cup run, I mean, it featured a, a the exercising of a demon against Sheffield Wednesday who would become yeah, a bit of a bogey team. Um, yeah. They were beaten after a replay at Hillsborough. But yeah, they, they came up against Spurs in the semi-final. Uh, that great Spurs side who'd won the double in uh, recent times and, and they went on to win the FA Cup this time around, in fact. Mm. Um, so um, a great, great performance for them. Um, in fact... If, if I'm not completely mistaken, was it Ipswich, Ipswich did win the it's Ipswich's following season where they um actually so they actually beat Ipswich when they were on the run to the title. I beg your pardon, that's right. I'm I'm running a year ahead of my time, yeah. Um but yeah, yeah it's even more impressive a result for for United. But the um yeah the, the it's no disgrace to have lost against a great Spurs side anyway in the in the semi final, but no. um United. They did, I think I may be wrong, but I think they beat United, uh, beat Spurs in the league, did they? They did the early on in the season, yeah. Quick soul yeah. story. And uh, uh, I mean, so it was yes, a very very sort of mixed season. But just if I can add something into the mix, and this wasn't special to United, but it may have contributed to some results, may not. We just don't know. But there was a lot of match fixing around at that time. And when allegations that this included the Man United dressing room were brought to Matt's attention in that the Daily Mail was running a, an investigation into it, yeah, his, his words were, I knew it. So he, he believed it. However, 
He chose to back the players. He got on to got the lawyers on and 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 got to went to the Daily Mail and eventually the Daily Mail, realizing that they hadn't ever hard evidence to back it up at that stage, wrote a letter of apology, and that dangled that letter of apology in front of the players in the dressing room. The message was quite clear. If there's any truth in this, it must stop. And it did. So whether any jiggery pokery went on, and it was fair, it was pretty widespread in the game at that time. Um, Matt, in his own hard to imitate way, put a stop to it. Uh, third to last home game of the season, United entertain Arsenal. They go away with a 3-2 win, but it's notable for the fights. It attracts a crowd of under 25,000 fans, uh, which is reflective of the, uh, not apathy, but um, sort of declining interest in United because they're not being very entertaining. Finished 15th in the league, in the league race. Uh, negative goal difference as well. Obviously, the team near the bottom, they're going to do that. 75 goals conceded. So we said that they fixed the defence, but still as cavalier as any Busby side would be. Um, 18 defeats in the league in all competition, uh, in, in the league. A goal average of 0. 0.96. So uh, even though they're still scoring goals, 72 is enough, but um, 75 is too many to let in, really. So United. Yeah. Um, really looking forward. Like you said, Busby not unduly concerned, which is a bit funny considering that he expressed more concern when they'd finished second in the post-Munich season. So, so. Absolutely. It's almost as if he was... as if he knew that, yeah. that his reign would be governed by 48, 58 and 68. It's extraordinary. Uh, he, he really didn't seem to be panicking at this stage. Indeed, he was planning for uh, a massive future. He was planning for a future in which Manchester United, far from sort of taking a look down at the relegation places, would be looking at the peak of Europe and would be wanting to compete with the Di Stefanos and the Real Madrids and, and the best people in Europe because he had... He wanted Dennis Law. Now, Dennis Law, by now, was playing for Torino. He joined John Charles, Jerry Hitchens, and uh, Joe Baker, and all the other um, players who went from Jimmy Greaves, who'd gone from uh, Britain to make their fortunes in, in, in the Italian football, unfortunately, for some of them. Not for John Charles, but for Dennis. It was a culture shock that he could not assimilate and for Jimmy Greaves it had been the same that they hated it over there and uh, playing in Italy where it was sort of a, one man again after Dennis certainly felt that he was fighting a lone battle against experienced and cynical defenders every week he hated it but Busby was on his case all the time and when fate conspired to bring a, the Italian League to England for a match against the Football League. In those days, interleague matches were very common. Uh, the English League would play the Scottish League every year and so on and so on. Uh, this year, it was the Italian League who came to England and where should the match be assigned to but Old Trafford? There was, of course, a banquet after the match and Matt made sure he was sitting next to Dennis. 
And he said, uh, how are you liking it out there, son? And Dennis's reply <laughs> left no room for doubt. It basically could be summed up in the words, come and get me. And uh, so sure enough, Matt kept the pressure up, sent a friend of his out to Turin to, you know, take Dennis out a couple of times. And, and uh, anyway, when the, when, when the clubs finally got together and started talking money, um, they were, the Italians were talking telephone numbers and not in lira, the uh, inflated Italian currency of the time, but in pounds it was massive. Uh, anyway, the clubs eventually agreed on £115,000 for Dennis's signature at the end of the season. And that was, um, that was the new British record. At, you know, the Italians had got a, a profit um, on the player that they bought from Man City and, well, Dennis, to his enormous relief, had got back to his old landlady in Withington, Manchester. <laughs> For him, Withington was better than the shadow of the Alps. So uh, he was really happy to be back in Manchester. So it suited every party. And another piece of the next great side was in place. Yeah, fantastic. Um, the, the, I love with United's transfers at this time, the big ones, that there's always a great tale behind them as well. Like not just... Oh, they went. They liked a player, and they went and signed him, like the Tommy Taylor one, where they went to the cinema to um, try and beat Cyril Spires, yes. the, the Cardiff yes. manager, and stuff like that. Um, always a little bit of a story behind them. Um, we'll look at the squad this yes. season. I'll put the squad picture up before I go through the stats. There, you'll see some players in there. You've got Alex Dawson in the top left; his head just cut off there, um, and. You can see the inset, the right. He's not right in the squad picture, but he's at the top right. Is David Hurd's picture just yeah. off at the top there? But yeah, we've got Brennan, folks, Campwell, Greg, Gaskell, Cope, who'd moved on to Luton at this point, Quicksall, um, Styles, Giles, Setters, Pearson, Violet, who obviously moved on mid season, and Charlton as well. I'll just run through some of the squads then. Harry Gregg, obviously the first choice goalkeeper, but limited to just 13 appearances this season in the league. Gaskell in in his stead really comes in and plays 28 in all competitions, mm. uh, 21 of those in the league. Ronnie Briggs, who we've mentioned in previous episodes, he makes eight league appearances, um, but that's just about it for him in the United shirt. Um, Shea Brennan, now a, a mainstay in the fullback position, 47 appearances. In all competitions, two goals, 41 appearances in the league. Noel Campwell, uh, 19 games in all competitions, two goals, 17 appearances in the league. That's because Tony Dunn has moved into left-back position and, and looking ominous, in, like just taking to it like a duck to water, really. Yes. 35 appearances in all competitions, 28 in the league. Bill Folks now obviously the um, mainstay in the centre-half position, 47 appearances, Forte in the league, no goals. Frank Haydock makes one single league appearance. Mm. Nobby Lawton, we mentioned him earlier in the halfback line, um, really on the periphery of the, the team at this moment in time. But United's need in that position means that he's, he makes 27 appearances in all competitions, six goals, 20 appearances in the league. Jimmy Nicholson with 
21 appearances in all competitions, one goal in the FA Cup, um, 17 appearances and no goals in the league. Maurice Setters, um, yeah, another halfback mainstay, four goals in 45 appearances in all competitions, three in 38 in the league. Nobby Styles, obviously, the other complementary um, halfback. Um, but as we're going to mention in both coming episodes, the obviously the actual formations are beginning to change and Styles and Setters would occasionally drop into the defence. Um, Styles, seven goals in 38 appearances, positively prolific, um, mm. seven in 34 in the, in the league. Warren Bradley now um, on the edge um, of his... Um, United career having contributed so well in the post Munich years. Um, seven appearances, no competitions, six of those in the league. Um, Bobby Charlton, um, we mentioned his, his growing influence, and it seems almost sacrilegious, really, to not mention him as prominently as he perhaps deserves. Mm-hmm. But we, I'm sure we'll be giving him his due credit in time. But 10 goals in 43 appearances, eight in 37 in the league. Uh, brings us on to the first debutant for this season, Phil Chisnell, who I've mentioned earlier on. And he's a Manchester-born forward who made his debut in December. He played nine straight games. It was already, really, though, a, a, an indication that Busby was seen prom- promising the side. But almost that because he'd come in, in place of Quicksall mm-hmm. in the inside yeah. forward position, instead of it looking like Chisnell could come in and do well, Busby was already seeing that there was an improvement to be had on Quicksall rather yeah. than Chisnell being the one to come in and replace him, uh, which right. is unfortunate. Um, well, that, that had given an opportunity to Johnny Giles because he was an inside right. Um, and uh, Johnny Giles had actually displaced Albert Quicksall uh, during the cup run. Yeah. Uh, right up to, you know, I think... He had a nightmare, uh, or he was perceived to have had a nightmare against Tottenham in the semi. Uh, Tottenham, of course, you know, um, you know, were the holders at the time, and 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 uh, I think that was what set uh, Giles back because I think at the at the time, Busby probably thought Giles, you know, might have replaced Quicksilver. Yeah, I, no, you're absolutely right. And Giles, there was a little bit of the Johnny Morris's about that, wasn't there? A little bit of um, yeah, yeah. The, oh, oh, G- he and Giles did not see eye to eye at all. In fact, but uh, Giles's recollection was that after the semi final against Spurs, basically everything he did was wrong. Uh, Busby sort of more or less treated him as if he was a winger from then on and played him outside right. Um, and if he went outside his man, he, he should have gone inside. If he went inside, he should have gone out. He, he just felt he couldn't do anything right. Um, and it was the sort of the beginning of the end of Johnny Giles's career, um, a career which was to be a rare case of a player proving Busby wrong. Yeah. Giles, um, three goals in 37 appearances, two in 30 in the league, one in seven in the FA Cup. Chisnell, yeah. by the way, made one, one, scored one goal in 13 appearances, nine yeah. appearances in the league. Um, John, um, sorry, Alex Dawson, before he left, scored two goals in four games, which shows again, even if Busby deemed him surplus to requirements, he was still, He's still, still got one in. One goal every second game, yeah. Yeah, uh, Mark Pearson, one goal in 17 league appearances, which, you know, shows again his decreasing influence in the team mm-hmm. due to the weight that was on him. Quicksold, 10 goals in 24 games, 
10 in 21 in the league. Violet, again, we'll talk about Dawson being deemed um, surplus to requirements. Violet had scored 7 in 13 league games before allowed to let go. So, still scoring the goals. Right to the end, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last two debutants in the in the team this season, Sammy McMillan, um, a Northern Irish player, he come from Boyland Youth Club, being picked up at the age of sixteen. He signed his first professional contract with the club in fifty nine November fifty nine, but it wasn't until uh, two years after that that he made his mm-hmm. professional debut uh, in a three one loss against Sheffield Wednesday this season. Um, he usually played from the left, which was his favoured position, but at this point, we we've already mentioned in previous episodes how Charlton was playing from the left. And I think yeah. this was probably around the time because his goal return was so good. I think Busby was thinking we really could be doing with Bobby Charlton in the middle of the park rather than drifting out wide. His mm-hmm. explosiveness from deep and his ability to carry the ball and, and make a difference um, really shining through. And, and Busby wanting to use, utilize that more. So again, we talk about McMillan. We talk about Chisnell. Um, Maybe not so much having the influence in what they brought to the side, but in what they identified could be a difference. Yes, uh, for Busby to um, to bring into time um, into the side, and and that brings us to David, who had um, like Paddy said earlier on in the episode, he had signed earlier on in the season. And again, I want to re- reference Ralph Finn's book here, the Champions Again book. Um, at Arsenal, David Hurd was just a player with a good shot. Manchester United is one of the best centre forwards in the business. A dangerous leader who can bustle out, bustle the coolness out of a defence and score goals with head and feet from impossible angles. When he joined United, he said it's just like coming home. Obviously, as mentioned earlier, his father had been a Manchester City player. Mm-hmm. Um, her do, due to who he was following and who followed him, often gets forgotten when people talk yep. about great forwards. I mean, he didn't have the elegance of a Violet, the aerial prowess of Taylor, the predatory instincts of a Law, the long-range danger of Charlton, or the dancing feet of a George Best. But you might say he had a little of all of that. Apart <laughs> he, had a, he had a bit of all of it, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I described him in my notes as the Dennis Irwin of centre-forwards, unfussy and complicated. Guaranteed to perform and give you goals, but maybe because his high points it weren't so high that his ceiling wasn't as high as the other players. That mm. might be why the spotlight um, isn't his. I mean, Ivan Pontin on Hurd's death. Um, Ivan, obviously, great ghost writer of United in predominantly yeah. in the 90s. He was fantastic, uh, but also in recent years as well. Um, he wrote on Hurd's death that. He played out his career in the shadow of greatness, but was a star in his own right. And I think that's a really good epitaph for. Yes, yes, yeah, that's that. Uh, that he's hit the nail on the head there. Um, that's ex- exactly what he was. Um, he wouldn't have been. I often think of the '68 team with him in it, um, mm. although he wasn't obviously. Um, he he, uh, he wouldn't have been sort of uh he wouldn't have been out of place he, uh, you know alongside uh Rob best and Tarleton. yeah um the tactics for this season i put greg in he was the first choice goalkeeper it was really gaskell who deserves the credit for being in that position this time around brennan folks and now you can see tony dunn really making that place his own uh, in front of as the uh, yeah that uh, in fact if you look one two three for, yeah, we're beginning to see a little bit of the 68 team. 
I think I think my my kindling analogy just about uh, holds. Yeah, that's I think more than kindling really. I know I think you're completely accurate there, but you can five, also see five actually five five. You can see the other players, um, the, the transitional players into being in the next great side like Cantwell already. I mean, he plays fair enough. I mean, Cantwell plays 19 games, so he's not um, insignificant number of appearances. But you know, Cantwell says Giles, Quicksall. Pearson, even Heard, these not Heard so much because he plays a big role in in the successes that it's follow. But those other players who are sort of transitional players, the next great Busby side are in there, and already you're going to start seeing a turnover of players. Um, again, going back to that earlier anecdote about Busby's um, foresight, really how, how incredible his foresight was. Um, yeah. The colours for this season, red, white and white. Again, they've hit the white socks and the away strip is all white. Um, the average attendance this season, we said that it was dropping. Um, it dropped from, the, well, the last episode we talked how it dropped to 38,501. It's dropped even further this time round, 36,904. We talked about the, um, the attendance against... Arsenal being 24,000, but in a game against Aston Villa in January, they went as low as 20,800. Mm-hmm. Um, United won on that occasion, but they obviously they want to see more people through the gates. Um, David Hurd, top goal scorer with um, 17 in 32 games and 14 in 27 in the um, in the league. And I also mentioned um, Miller, I don't know if I mentioned Ian Meyer. He made nine league appearances and Sammy McMillan um, six in 11 in, in the league. So he made a, a decent impact as well. So that's United's squad. Um, the key results against Spurs, you know, they, they won at home, as yep. you mentioned. They they drew away at Spurs as well. And, and obviously that big win against Ipswich in April where Quicksall scored a hat-trick and Setters and Siles also scored against the champions elect. So again, they did this against Burnley. They've done it against Spurs. They can they can beat the champions. They can beat the best teams in the country. They just need that consistency. Um, elsewhere in football, Paddy, I'm coming up to a very special period of the podcast for you, but in, in English football, before we get there, Ipswich obviously won the league. A remarkable story. Their first ever season in the top flight, Alf Ramsey. Basically, it's an achievement that gets in the England job, and rightly so. Um, incredible mm-hmm. thing. Spurs having won the double in the previous season, retained the FA Cup. Liverpool, after eight years in Division Two, are promoted to the first division. Um, in Europe, Benfica retained the European Cup. Incredible final against Real Madrid. Eusebio scores twice. Puskas scores a hat-trick in the first half, and it's still not enough. For Real Madrid, um, Benfica winning that and becoming a real, looking like they're going to become a dominant team in mm-hmm. European football. Uh, but probably all, all of these stories are insignificant to what's happening north of the border. No, they, they, they certainly are. You talk about the coming force in European football. Um, and maybe I'm biased, and I, I'm, I'm, I'll keep this because I know that people are not interested in. Who's that? Well, I'm coming to the Dundee team of 1962. I, I'm going to be putting up a, a series oh, of slides. Ah, right, right, good, good. Because yes, Dundee, my my team. I know that you know that everybody listening to this and watching this is not interested in Dundee. But you see that badge? You see that badge on those those players? 
Uh, there it is. Hang on a minute. Uh, <laughs> there it is. I still drink from that cup, uh, or more accurately, the league championship trophy that was won in that glorious season of 61-2. That's the 62-3 team photo, yeah. because when I talked about the coming force in Europe, that Dundee team went into Europe and uh, were only knocked out by Milan in the semi-finals, the final that year, 62-3. And I know we're jumping ahead because we haven't even done Man United 62-3 yet, and that's not bad. But in that 62-3 season, the Dundee team that had won the league in that 61-2 that we're talking about got, went all the way to the semi-finals, and the final was at Wembley. If we could only have held on against Milan, uh, we would have... It would have been us rather than Milan who contested the final with, uh, well, there we are. Now, there's a story behind that. And if you don't mind, I'll just tell you. We, I was a paper boy and my job was to deliver that paper, the Sporting Post, on a Saturday night. And because our final game was away to St. Johnston, um, who needed to avoid defeat to stay in the division, um, uh, the game was at Perth. Now, I wasn't going to miss that. 25,000 Dundee fans went to Perth for this game against St. Johnston. We beat them 3-0. But, of course, the road from Perth to Dundee was completely clogged by the buses and the cars and everything with 25,000 people going back. And I didn't get back to, to pick up those a bag, a satchel of those papers, those sporting posts. I didn't get back to pick up my 30 copies of this body post to distribute I think I was about 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night I was three hours late and I thought the man's going to kill me, the paper shop man's going to kill me. And he greeted me, I wouldn't say with a smile but with a sort of look of resignation handed me this satchel and I went off and he said well you know better late than never and he says don't worry I know where you've been and I didn't get a single complaint from any of the 30 or 40 households that I delivered the Sporting Post to, because everyone was so proud that the league title had come to Dundee. Even Dundee United supporters, I suppose, would have been proud, or people who didn't take any interest in football would have been proud. It was a great day in our history. But let me just tell you something. I don't know if you can scroll down on that copy of the Sporting Post, but if you could, and you got to the line, the teams, uh, the lineups of St. Johnston and Dundee, you will see that St. Johnston's number 10 or 9 was a man called Ferguson. <laughs> His first name was Alex. So I was there on the 29th, the 28th of April, 1962, on the day when Alex Ferguson got relegated. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I... I just thought I'd better get in a Manchester United angle for you uh, because this is a Man United podcast. And I thank you very much for allowing me just to tell you. And here's us back uh, celebrating in the dressing room, just a modest glass of uh, champagne or something. Uh, the player you'll recognise, uh, because this is a Man United podcast, just above the manager, between the manager and his assistant, uh, a man with big white teeth. That's Ian Ewer, who went on to 
have probably one of the least prolific, uh, least impressive uh, spells of his career at Man United, having been signed from Arsenal when he was completely crocked. Very poor decision by Matt, I'm afraid, on that uh, occasion. Uh, but uh, that was Ian Ewer, who was a wonderful player in his early days with us. And then to the left of Ian, uh, well, above him is a smiling man called Alan Cousinow, centre-forward. And to his left, another smiling man, immediately above the manager, who was uh, Bob Shankly, the brother of Bill Shankly, um, is a smiling man and our legendary top goal scorer, Alan Gilzine, who went on to have a magnificent career with Spurs. So, uh, you know, happy days and thank you very much, uh, Wayne, for allowing me to dwell on that great, great side. I promise you it was a very, very good team. Oh, no um, We've got a and, couple more. So oh, this is from the well, there's, our, there's our captains. Uh, well, we called him Sir Bobby Cox. He, he, he wasn't actually technically knighted by the Queen, but he should have been. He was a Dundee boy. He came from just 200 yards from Dens Park. And there he is celebrate, as our captain celebrating the league, the league title uh, at uh, Muirton Park, St. Uh, Perth, the ground of St. Johnston. And there's, there are 25,000 Dundee fans there and... Uh, those were those were great days. I thought it would always be like this. Look at the goal celebrations. You'd think it was a home game for us. Look at that. <laughs> We'd just dominate the whole place. And uh, there's number 10, Alan Gilzean, with his arms held aloft. Uh, yet another goal. He scored two that day. Ferguson complained that he'd scored one and it should have been 3-1 rather than 3-0. But he'd actually fouled Ian Ewer. And there, is, there are the team in glorious colour. Ian Ewer... Uh, towards the back row, uh, uh, one of the, the players who played for Dundee and Manchester United. Others, by the way, include Arthur Alberston and Jim Layton. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Where's Gilly? Gilzine is two along from Ian Ewer at the back there with a glorious head of hair, although all England English fans will remember his Tottenham days where he was, well, his hairs were almost as thin on the ground as mine. Uh, but there we are. That's the great team. And thank you. Thank you very much for letting me share my, well, I'm, 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 as soon as we finish this, I'm going to have a little weep. But uh, there we go. Thank you. Uh, one last one. Ian, you were um, in competition against Cologne in the uh, European Cup in the following ah, season. Ah, well, that was in the 62-3 season. Yeah. Because our first game pitch. was against, we were drawn against Cologne, which was a terrible draw, we thought, because... They were the third favourites to win it, uh, champions of Germany or West Germany. And uh, we won 8-1 at home. We were uh, I would have settled. If you'd offered me a, a one-all draw, a respectable home draw, and then lose over in Germany, I'd have bitten your hand off. We won 8-1. But, uh, oh, great days. Great days. But that's another podcast. Wayne, thank you very much. And thank you very much to all the watchers and listeners for allowing me to just uh, dwell in a, a little bit of past glory there. Thank you very much. And as this series continues, Wayne, as you're about to explain, uh, we will be moving on to some proper Man United glory for all of you lot to enjoy. Well, absolutely. But after providing us all with hours of entertainment, reminiscing of United, it would be very unfair 
to not take the five minutes <laughs> to allow you to bask in the glory of, of your team. And some great names in that. Uh, but this yeah. is a it is a Manchester United history podcast, but it's also a contemporary one to look at the events of the day. And, uh, you know, yeah. Was um, absolutely fantastic, and, and of course uh, their achievement in the following season, getting to the semi-final of of the European Cup, which of course is uh, matching United's achievement at this moment in time, as as far as they got in, in uh, recent years as well. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll go with you on that one, Paddy. I think the real story of the sixty one sixty two season is uh, up in Dundee. Yeah, that's it for this episode of the podcast. If you were watching, if you're listening back to the audio podcast, by the way, and you listen to Paddy getting fairly misty, I do watch the video version of that because we've got all the images of um, Dundee's title win. Well, all of the images. We've got five or six in there. to really vivid images, really great ones of um, the, the crowd celebration in particular. I love that one. Um, I, all those older pictures where you see the, the crowd really engaging because it's more mm. of a community feel i always feel like the older pictures it feels like very a, much so. a club as a community and especially a club like uh, a provincial club like dundee who uh yeah who um yeah rightly celebrated their uh, phenomenal victory um if you're watching the video please give it a like and subscribe join in the conversation in the comment section if just to pass on your congratulations to Paddy many years after the event. And I'm sure we still love your congratulations. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time to talk more, a little bit more about Dundee's European adventure and also Manchester United's <laughs> Club adventure. Um, Don't worry, I won't subject you to that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the Talk Sport Fan Network. Talk Sport. Powered by fans.